Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, my co-host, Medea Ocho. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. We're going to be talking to Daryl Pinkney today. Yes. His new book is called Busted in New York and Other Essays. I am such a huge Daryl Pinkney fan. Tell me about it. Ask me why. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you why. <laughs> because uh, I think, I'm sure I had read his criticism in New York Review before, but many years ago, I was writing something about Nan Golden. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for pieces about her that kind of like gave me a feel for her life in the way that her photographs portray her life in that very personal, visceral way. And um, mm-hmm. Daryl Pinckney's writing, he wrote an essay for a catalog of hers called I'll Be Your Mirror. And his essay was the one that most transported me, most gave me this idea of what it was actually like to be among her circle of friends in a way that's completely blew me away. And then I've seen it referenced by other people later. So just kind of that time in New York. It was really, like, stunning. Wow. Yeah. I recommend it highly. I wish I had a copy of it and I could read it more often, but I just remember loving it. And this book is also filled with many really beautiful essays, this time around mostly about politics and Daryl's many years in uh, observing the state of U.S. politics. And, you know, as we will hear in the interview, he's now seems to be kind of in despair about the state of these politics. But he's a very keen observer, despite the despair, I think. Yes, I I think so. And he's just, he's so good to read. Yeah. So, right. If someone writes well, I mean, they can walk you through any kind of headspace and any kind of thoughts. And he does. Yeah. Well, let's get to the interview. Great. Daryl Pinkney with us today. Daryl is the author of two novels, Black Deutschland and High Cotton, and two works of nonfiction, Blackballed, The Black Vote and U.S. Democracy, and Out There, Mavericks of Black Literature. Daryl's latest book is a collection of essays called Busted in New York and Other Essays. Very straightforward in terms <laughs> of the genre, with a forward by Zadie Smith. Thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Daryl, a number of these essays are about, directly or indirectly, about the presidency of Barack Obama. So I just wanted to start off by asking you to talk a little bit about what Obama's election meant to you personally and how you interpreted it in terms of the direction of the country. Well, it was no question a great and historic moment, considering what an impossibility a black president had always been in the popular imagination. And here it was. It probably told us a lot more about the political process and our system than we wanted to face at the time. In what way? Well, my memory is that in his first term, he was sort of blocked and frustrated and, you know, the refusal to cooperate with him on any level and the constant criticism in sort of odd ways, this attempt to kind of paralyze or negate his power. I think that it wasn't that there was a black family in the White House that excited the, well, anger of his opponents, but the idea that this outsider, a black man, was in charge of the money and the incredible sort of patronage and federal power. Never mind that he was certainly not a wild card 
any anyway. He's a very Harvard kind of guy. So, but nevertheless, it meant a lot. He was sort of president of the world, and you know, for eight years, one was sort of proud again to be an American abroad. You know that he and the first lady really represented a kind of 21st century hope. And then it just sort of, you know, we were kidding ourselves. It's a very sort of startling and kind of cruel reversal, even if it's only temporary and I wonder if it is. You know, it sort of told me that I was sort of not paying attention or looking in the wrong places or no longer knew where I was or had somehow fallen out of date. I didn't know anyone who thought that Trump would win. But then I think a lot of people weren't saying what they really thought in private conversation and to the sad pollsters. In any case, here we are. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first piece in the book goes back to 1995. And while I was reading it, I was struck by some of the residences as I'm sure you were, but how did it feel sort of looking back, and this is sort of related to the Obama presidency, but looking back at a pre-now, pre-our contemporary moment to the things that you were thinking about and sort of grappling with 20 years ago, I guess. Well, there very much is a kind of pre-Obama, pre-9-11 America, and there it is. Maybe that's one of the reasons I began the collection with this piece from then, you know, it's sort of a time of stress for black America, even though there's a Democrat in the White House, because black culture is very much under pressure and sort of attacked or described or still sort of viewed as pathological. I think I also wanted to announce in some ways some underlying themes of the social essays in the collection, which have to do with community ideas of manhood and black politics, how they have intersected over the years, and my own sort of estrangement from a lot of the popular currents, or I don't know what to call it, estrangement's too strong a word, looking for my place in the wider stream, or trying to make a place in the wider stream of what was going on, seeing it somehow from a more marginal perspective. Yeah, I that, think of myself as having a marginal perspective. You do think of yourself as having a marginal perspective? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah. that's really clear yeah. in that essay because, you know, it takes place at the Million Man March on Washington and you're very skeptical of, you know, Farrakhan and portray him as someone who's... Contemptuous. <laughs> Contemptuous, even better. Yeah, and, and portray him basically as a somewhat of a con man. But at the same time, you know, the things, the kind of plights that he's alluding to in many ways you believe are true. And yes. there's, I think in that essay, there's this kind of theme of individuality, the individual person versus this idea of like the black man or the black community. And there's even a moment where you see someone on a bus a young, chic-looking man, and you want to address him, but you think it would be presumptuous to assume that he, too, is going to the march. And I thought that was such oh, a... Oh, that's on the plane, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. on the plane. I thought it was such a poignant moment because it brings up a lot of the undercurrents of the essay in a very small interaction. Well, you're very kind. I mean, I the odd thing was the actual event was very moving. 
all these guys being there and asking something of one another and of themselves was terrifically moving. It made it all the more exasperating that in some ways they were being exploited in that old-fashioned, you know, come into the tent way because they were there in such numbers and with such conviction, you know, sort of said that they were asking for something or ready to address something. And I don't know if you could say anything like that came out of it. It's not the Gary political convention. It was just a kind of Farrakhan rally. So they're very just sort of different things. And then, you know, the book moves on into just moments in the Bush years or the coming of the Bush years. And then, and then we get Obama and what that means. And then the paradox is there he is. And, you know, we become increasingly aware of this problem of black neighborhoods and the police or the mainstream becomes aware of it because, you know, black neighborhoods, well, they've always known it. And you see that as directly tied to Obama's presidency, that Black Lives Matter wouldn't have necessarily been possible without Obama? No, I don't see it that way. But I think that it certainly began to describe a generational gap that we were reluctant to admit to. You know, I was surprised in Ferguson at the number of young people who, you know, had no faith in the electoral process. And so they didn't see Obama as having much ability to affect anything. In some ways, his victory meant more to, well, no, that's a generality I'm not going to make. Because, you know, I think that his first campaign certainly spoke to youth in a big way, in a profound way. And then something didn't happen. And something else did. And so the second term is very different. In what way? Well, I think, you know, the sort of limits of what could be done were getting to people in ways. And what felt like a coalition in 2012 wasn't there in 2016. And I think a lot of people stayed home out of, you know, some grudge against the Clintons because of their bruising encounters with Obama in the first campaign. I thought something was stronger than it was. It's hard to find the words, really, but I overestimated some things and underestimated others. And it just sort of has left me with this feeling that I really don't understand the U.S. anymore. Maybe I was away too long. Maybe I'm now too old. Maybe I'm just not in touch with what could tell me what things are, but I don't think maybe it's that the country isn't knowable in the way that I always assumed it was, you know, that there isn't this kind of core experience we're all sharing anymore. Maybe that's gone. Well, I guess I'm curious, well, how do you live with that unknowing? Because that's sort of a difficult state to be in, I think, or to accept it. But perhaps we all live with a certain amount of unknowing and you just get used to a greater or lesser extent. Well, if you were speaking to an individual who could not imagine a future, you would say that that person was depressed. What do you call a country that seems to be in the same state or a society that seems to be in the same state? And I can't tell if I feel this way because I've reached a certain age or if events are really different from you know, what they've been in the past few decades. I don't necessarily believe in the cyclical view of history or that, you know, you can sort of equate one historical moment with another. 
these are all stories we tell ourselves to assure ourselves in one way or another, but maybe the technological revolution is not like the industrial revolution and its effects on society and people. Maybe something new is happening that we can't yet describe. I think everyone accepts that some period of transition is going on. We just don't know to what. It's interesting because, you know, you say this, but at the same time, the essays in the book, something I appreciate so much about them is their very deep, deep, deep current of history and this kind of macro vision of American and Black experience in America and Black history. Reading your essays, I didn't feel so much that Trump was an anomaly. I felt that you showed me a lot of what he may have come out of and the kind of many, yes. many conflicting currents even within Black experience, but certainly of kind of the finities of class and race in the country that, you know, I could see you diagramming Trump very well. And that's why I asked about Obama and the way you saw him. I'm wondering if there was, if there were not negative emotions necessarily, but if you at times had any skepticism when he was in office or elected or some of the more like conflicting... No, I mean, I can't answer the drone question to my own satisfaction. Others are a bit more decided, but I'm not necessarily. I never expect a mainstream politician to be like me or my friends or anything like that. So I didn't have expectations of him as a lefty or even as, you know, a black president. I mean, he was clearly running on the idea that he could be everyone's president. And he really tried that first term. And so, no, I can't say that I sort of was disappointed in him or his policies. No. You know, I think that I didn't pay enough attention to how relentless the opposition is to the values Obama, in my mind, represented. I mean, when the Voting Rights Act was overturned, They used the same arguments to overturn it that the opposition had against it in 1965 when it was passed. So I think I was too quick to assume that this kind of right-wing effort was, had been outvoted or, you know, a sort of new coalition could always went out over it. And it turned out not to be true. I'm sure a lot of the vote against Clinton was a sort of Obama backlash. People were saying, oh, it's not that It's a woman, it's that, you know, it's Hillary, but everyone forgets why they hated Hillary in the first place, which is because she was a woman who tried to exercise power in addition to all the other troubles the Clintons had. But I think maybe Clifford Thompson might be right that a lot of it was indifference. And I think many people voted for Trump because they thought it would be more money. And it has been for them. So, you know, people don't sort of live in the same country. That's a big part of it. And then, you know, liberalism has been so demonized in the same way that Europe was demonized in the UK. Eventually, people who feel not listened to will sort of blame these so-called elites when actually, you know, the Republicans are the elites. It's just, you know, sort of demonizing liberal culture, liberal values, things like that. But I don't know. I wanted to ask you about an essay two essays, actually, in this book. If you look at an essay of yours, like Invisible Black America, for instance, which talks about an incident during Obama's presidency where Henry Louis Gates was arrested outside of his home 
for, you know, supposedly breaking into his home. And then in that piece, you also expand on the kind of systemic violence of prisons and the population of prisons, and that this was a very teachable moment that Obama didn't necessarily take advantage of. And then you have an essay on your own experience being arrested, which is the title essay of the book called Busted in New York. So I wondered if you could just compare those two pieces and if you see any relationship basically in, in your own experience of perhaps being racially profiled and arrested and what you saw inside prison and kind of what you made of your experience, the severity of your experience after you came into contact with other people who perhaps were in prison longer or for worse things or for, you know, whatever. When I was arrested in 1999, it was Giuliani, zero tolerance, very pre 9-11. And so these were sort of considered lifestyle crimes. And as I indicate in the piece, they very clearly separated people that they thought were a bit sort of middle class and likely to complain from people that were trying to control the punishment was simply in being arrested and detained for close to two days or something like that. So, you know, it sort of showed how the system worked in the sense that, you know, it was all kind of a conveyor belt of sort of rules and regulations and who went where. But it was not anything remotely like what most black guys go through. And Obama should have pardoned all marijuana offenders, people like that. There is some argument between James Foreman and Michelle Alexander, between their books at least, over where the drive for tough sentencing really came from. But there's a lot of unfair incarceration in the U.S., as we know. It has the highest incarceration population percentage of any country, I believe. So my experience was very different from what a lot of people face. And I think that, if anything, it was sort of bringing more into my mind the possibility that maybe Obama is the last kind of racial moment in a way, the last sort of tribal moment, and that it's impossible now to talk about black America without talking about class in some sort of meaningful way. I mean, there's always the individual story and identity, and this adds to our history and our understanding of where we are. But in the larger sense, if we're saying that the U.S. is much less like the place where I grew up and much more like the rest of the world, then things from the outside impinge on us here more than they have ever before. And that would sort of have to do with not just the global economy, but to get over the fear of sounding a certain way, global capitalism, really. And, you know, that we're getting sort of drawn into a global system. And isn't it odd that black people end up being the ones trying to defend the state? You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Daryl Pinckney about his new book, Busted in New York, and other essays. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Matt Wolf in the studio with us today. Matt Wolf is a filmmaker, and his latest film is called Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project. Matt is here to recommend a book. Matt, what book are you going to recommend? 
The last book I read that I was obsessed with is Peter McGough's memoir, I've Seen the Future and I'm Not Going. And Great title. Amazing title. He was part of an artist duo. Um, they went by the name McDermott and McGuff. And they were well-known and very successful in the 1980s, but, but for many years before that had been living basically as turn-of-the-century dandies. They would live in kind of tenement-style apartments in the Lower East Side and rip out all of the kind of radiators and plumbing and redecorate these places to, to look like actual turn-of-the-century houses living by candlelight. But they were punks. They were involved in the punk scene. So they would show up in these dapper clothes from the period, but in a punk club. So there was this incredible anachronism in the life that they led. And they rode the wave of the art world in the 80s and at one point had incredible wealth and occupied this regal and monumental bank in Williamsburg, the Williamsburg Savings Bank, which was their studio and home. If if you know the building, it's insane. That, that they is there. insane. They had a horse and buggy in Brooklyn and, and once rode that horse over the Williamsburg Bridge and led just this incredible life. And I think he called it a rags to riches to rags story. And he's an incredible storyteller. I love the book. Do they lose their wealth? Yes. And, mm. you know, AIDS is a big part of the book. And mm-hmm like a nefarious third who enters the relationship causes quite a bit of conflict. So it's everything you want from a memoir. It's dishy about a scene in the 80s. It's like a life too imaginative and wild to even kind of uh, make up. And then there's a lot of tragedy and also triumph in it. It's It's an incredible life and very well rendered in this book. That sounds amazing. Would you tell us the author again and the title of the book? Peter McGough, and the title is I've Seen the Future and I'm Not Going. Thank you so much, Matt. We've been speaking with Matt Wolf. His latest film is called Recorder, The Marion Stokes Project. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Daryl Pinckney, author of Busted in New York. Something that ever struck me as you were talking is that one of the ways in which you describe the Obama presidency just now is the, the limitations of what's possible. And that seems to be really a, a recurring theme within almost all of the essays in this book, where at some point you seem to sort of come face to face with the limitations of what's possible. I mean, I think in probably in Busted in New York, it's the most literal version of that, right? Where suddenly you are faced with bars. And so the limitations are suddenly immense. But you end in this other sort of place where it's a barbecue with a group of friends and suddenly you see how for others, these limitations are much further on the horizon. Like they're, they're, the limitations of what's possible are not as present for these people as they had been for you, particularly the night before when you were in jail. I'm wondering if you have changed your thinking about the limitations of what is possible over these years? Or have the recent years sort of made you feel as if, well, they're the same as they ever were? As particularly in your in your pieces about police brutality, again, it really seems like these limitations of just simply being a, a man walking down the street or of stealing a cigar or whatever, are the limitations are immense, right? So, and that doesn't seem that much different than it was perhaps. Well, no. I mean, of course things are different. The discussion of these things is different. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have the mainstream 
insisting these things are wrong. Uh, and this is very different from any number of years ago where these things either weren't talked about in the mainstream or were talked about in a completely different way. I think one of the things the Obama era did was to decriminalize blackness in the popular mind. You know, you cannot have this head of state everywhere and still pretend that there's something innate about black anything mm. uh, that uh, had to do with uh, negative qualities that justified a certain kind of social uh, control or assumptions of, you know, behavior, uh, aberrant behavior. You, you know what I'm trying to say. So I think that uh, the passage of time does matter. I think that's why history matters. You know, seeing where we are, knowing where we've been, understanding where things come from, analysis, to think is to sort of identify patterns. If we are interested in uh, salvaging the republic, then these are our best tools, our past, and um, the values that everyone who's fought for has fought for along models that were perfected by the civil rights movement, at least in the 20th century. And then, you know, we can't pretend that race wasn't a big part of what the country has fought over in its history as well. So there's that, if that's not too far spread and babbling again. No. What uh, do you... I think the past does matter. But again, you know, I have to kind of uh, go back to this general unease I feel. Maybe one of the things that drove me to make this kind of collection was something valedictory, or something, some elegiac feeling that, you know, something is over. Hmm. And um, I can't tell what's coming. Who can? What do you think about protest now? Because you, in some of these essays, you are involved in them, and, and you are, again, somewhat estranged, I think, during those protests, though moved. How do you think about that? about protest now? Well, I think that, you know, it does matter. Uh, I was really depressed until I went to the climate march. Mm. Even though it was a great surprise to be treated as a middle-aged person and not as a sort of um, aren't black people hit forever person. Because <laughs> she said that you're not. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not so sorry. The young are concerned. You know, it's not true. Oh, uh, and how are you treated uh, so like a middle-aged person? That, that kind of protest matters because you know, activism, uh, social media is not the same thing as activism. Uh, sitting on, you know, at one's laptop is not the same thing as, as activism. It's just not. It's maybe a feature of it or an aspect of it, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the same thing. No, I think okay. protest is very important. I, I wanted to ask you about your upbringing. You, you mentioned here that your parents, when they saw injustices, would sue. They sued the police department um, in, your, in your town to desegregate it, and they also sued the fire department. Is that correct? Yes. So from them, talk about kind of their, their model of activism and, and just in general, how they equipped you um, for, for well, life um, as, a, as a black man. I mean, my... My father was born in Boston because his father was there 
with the dream that then didn't work out. And so they went back to Georgia, uh, where his family uh, is from, and my mother's from Georgia. So uh, they grew up under segregation, even though, you know, their parents were all sort of college graduates, that kind of thing, uh, interested in education. They didn't identify with the black bourgeoisie. It was always black education or education uh, in general, education or, you know, sort of uh, achievement, advancement, not being held back. Um, My father always said that um, had he stayed in Georgia, he would have been killed. So, you know, after the war, he was kind of a radical supporter of Henry Wallace and that kind of thing. Uh, But my family came and sort of uh, interrupted all that. And then uh, when the protests uh, were starting in the 60s, he kind of took it up again. They were always very rank and file. Uh, uh, and eventually, you know, joined the NAACP, which in the 60s and the 70s was not a very popular organization, but one that had a kind of machinery that then still worked. And so they were very much a sort of part of that. And But they knew, you know, people who had other points of view uh, in Indianapolis, where I'm from. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it was not just sort of one thing, you know, uh, you live with lots of kind of ideas and beliefs back then. And probably the same is true uh, today. My own experience of my family was, uh, of course, I spent a lot of time trying to get away from them. Uh, and um, I'm sure part of uh, my life in Europe was to get away from them and you know, to sort of um, have a sort of privacy, to have a gay life. Um, and also, I think artistically, I was drawn much more to uh, an avant-garde in New York uh, where these issues were indirectly addressed, not directly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was always thought I was doing something weird on the side. <laughs> and what did they make of your, of your profession and, and, your, and your lifestyle? Well, uh, of course, my sisters and I devoted ourselves to uh, hiding as much from my parents as we could. So they didn't know that much about my lifestyle. And they were themselves very straight, just very straight. Uh, but that's not to say that they weren't sort of fun because, you know, they, they weren't particularly uh, religious, though uh, they had sort of deep feelings about life itself. And, uh, you know, they had wanted me to sort of do something more secure, but uh, the more they they sort of read, the better they felt. And uh, they liked, eventually, the New York Review of Books. And um, I did a lot of work in the theater in Europe, but they never saw any of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think uh, it made much sense to them, Uh, though they talked to Robert Wilson a lot. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think they could picture what he did and they, they never tried to come to anything. Mm. I never really particularly encouraged them to either. <laughs> One of the things that yeah, you, you mentioned earlier too, and, and that I, I noticed in this book as well is, is, um, is this question of manhood. What, what kind of man was your father? Um, well, uh, he got kicked out of Fisk where he played football for calling the French teacher queer. Uh, 
<laughs> but his father knew uh, Benjamin Mays. And so he got into Morehouse the next day. And he met my mother playing ping pong uh, in her neighbor's basement the day he got to Morehouse. Mm. And uh, yet I found in his papers after he died a, 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 a letter must have been to one of those NAACP committees uh, about uh, defending people who had lost their uh, health insurance because they were seen as a, a you know at risk for having AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, you know, spoke to James Fenton for 20 years. So uh, there was nothing they didn't know. My father, I think, um, you know, the only thing that he sort of cared about was sort of justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, talked a lot about that. Uh, and he was a very sort of strong-willed, rather independent uh, guy. Uh, the one thing about the professional black class is that you have to remember they were self-employed, so nobody could tell them not to do this or that. And uh, a lot of those guys had uh, allies uh, in the shady world who paid for a lot of things having to do with civil rights that they don't get credit for, of course. He had a very uh, bitter relationship with his father, who you know, was a troubled man. Uh, and I think that's why I tend to sort of interpret black history generationally because I've seen sort of in my own time things acted out, uh, you know, um, World War One acting out against World War Two, and mm-hmm. my sort of Vietnam era acting out against my father's World War II. Uh, but uh, he, of course, then, not of course, he then sadly really lost it uh, in later life. One day, someone will write about uh, the toll on ordinary people that uh, civil rights uh, work had, because uh, he was very sort of bitter and paranoid at the end. Mm. It was very sad. Because he didn't feel like his, his vision had been realized. No, he had such trouble locally in Indianapolis that uh, you know, he went on thinking his enemies were out to get him. So it was mm. real old-fashioned sort of paranoia mm. of a boring kind. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some of that paranoia, you know, for some people was Was justified. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. No question. This is the problem, you know. Yeah. Uh, Some real things happen, and you then explain everything uh, in the light of these experiences. So, you know, a great deal of damage went on or took place or something. In the light of that, and in light of sort of reading through the, the forms of estrangement in this in this collection how did you sort of build your i mean build your manhood sounds really sort of naughty actually but uh, <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i have but, uh, but b- build uh, yourself as as a as a man I, I i guess um well you know i had this image of what it looks like mm-hmm. you know and i knew perfectly well what was expected so that was never a mystery or a problem my own kind of feckless nature and saturation and sort of bohemia, which in my case also included, you know, all the drugs of new wave, mm-hmm. uh, simply sort of postponed that or gave me a feeling of um, exemption that, oh, you don't have to grow up yet. And I do mind that all the cliches of life are true. Not a few, all of them mm-hmm. are true. So here I am sort of, uh, still trying to get to 
uh, adulthood, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm awfully close to the grave instead. <laughs> um, I-, I wanted to ask about your your writing process, just the way you write. I, kn- I know that you were um, very close with Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, and and a great fan of of her writing and um, something that I admire so much about your own work is, you know, the the elegance of your prose, but then also the kind of complexity of you're describing the present so well. You're, there's the deep connection of history. Um, just well, you're very kind. Oh, well, it's it's very heartfelt and um, so, and so I want to know how you do it. Um, how especially at some of these pieces that are more reported where I feel like you're talking to people and you're writing down details. Um, and at the same time, you're reflecting on the the history of things. For, uh, for instance, in the first piece, which goes deep into the history of um, Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam and all these things. Um, so how do you construct a piece like that? Are you taking, are you doing research beforehand? Are you just you know, rapid fire, every single thing you're thinking, how how do you capture something like that in writing? Well, uh, I'm glad I had the chance to do these things. A lot of what I was writing about, I never had in school. You know, black history was in the home and, you know, in my parents' shelves. And uh, when I started to write about these things, it's amazing what I could find, just uh, calling them or going to see them. So I started to read a lot in that way. Uh, because of these um, opportunities, I don't want to call them assignments, these opportunities to learn something or to witness and to reflect and to deal with something that I had no idea meant so much to me. I, you know, my youth coincides with uh, an age of polemic, especially from the black side of town. Uh, you know, the assertions were probably very important, uh, but... Uh, um, I early on sort of knew that um, I wanted to speak in a uh, uh, different register. Um, it mattered a great deal to me to have Elizabeth Harbick as a teacher um, because she believed in power of ideas and the importance of language and also that nothing you undertook was casual. And uh, she was very much against uh, the polemical tone, uh, the propagandistic intent um, uh, she stressed that you're writing for an ideal reader in the future. Uh, so you want to be clear and tell the truth. Otherwise, what's the point? Uh, and uh, she also taught me the joys of style uh, and uh, trying to cultivate uh, uh, a use of language that in some ways uh, reflects both your personality and um, your wish to honor the literature you care about, whether it's history writing or uh, fiction or anything sort of like that. Um, and so, you know, all these things give you a set of uh, responsibilities as an observer uh, and uh, also gives you a way to take yourself seriously because it's really hard to convince yourself that the world needs to hear what you have to say. It's very hard uh, to find that kind of, um, I don't even want to call it ego, because even that sounds like ego, but, uh, you know, to convince yourself that what you're doing 
has some relevance or importance. Uh, and uh, to write is one of those ways of doing it, or to write in a certain way mm. uh, is one of those ways to get to that point where you can say what you think, even if you're not sure what you think. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when you're writing, are you are you often going through like many, many drafts or are you writing very slowly? Um, how, how do you get, get the piece in the end? I used to write by longhand and that was very slow. But then I was writing mostly about black literary history. So it wasn't really going anywhere. <laughs> uh, with sort of uh, social events, filing sort of for deadline, uh, things like that, you have to kind of speed up. And I must confess, I do so much on screen now. Uh, and it's probably made a difference because um, you can change your mind a lot and also things look a lot more finished than they probably really are. Uh, it very much depends on what I'm writing, um, you know, whether it comes quickly or slowly. I think the hardest thing for me is to get going and I go through um, fantastic sort of pointless uh, exercises and sort of self-loathing and misery and visits to the deli and too many potato chips because I can't sort of find the way in. Mm. But once I get going and can concentrate, uh, then I'm all right. I, I know people who, for, for them, uh, to write it out is almost the last step uh, because uh, these people can think, you know, they can hold lines and arguments in their head. And I don't know what I think till I write it out. So it's always a mess at first. But then, you know, there comes what <laughs> Professor Harvard used to call the joys of revision. You know, then you shape what you're doing and find out more of what you think, you know, once that sort of first draft is down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes what I've seen changes what I thought I was going to say. Uh, you know, uh, that happens as well. So you have to kind of, you know, um, go into things uh, um, able to listen Mm. as well and not just, you know, confirm, look for what you don't look for what confirms what you already think, you know, kind of open yourself up to what's going on. Well, that's the worst kind of reader probably. The person who's looking right. for for what they already think is there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do, uh, you know it goes on. We have time for one last question, and I wanted to ask okay. you: Do you so you moved back from Europe? Is that right? Yes. What What made you leave? What made you move back to the states? Personal reasons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that sounds kind of uh, maybe an exciting place to end it <laughs> with so much unsaid. <laughs> Hardship. 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 Okay. Well, thank you so much, Daryl, for, for joining us today. Well, thank you. I'm, I hope uh, you can make something out of this kind of roaming talk. I am certain that uh, we have much to make. Uh, out of everything that we've talked about. (laughs) Okay. We've been speaking with Daryl Pinckney. His latest book is called Busted in New York and Other Essays. Thank you again, Daryl. Thank you.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 